This episode of Motley Fool Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health, a new fully integrated biopharmaceutical solutions organization that's the result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health. Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit CineosHealth.com slash podcast. Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Uh, Today is Wednesday, January the 9th. I am your host, Shannon Jones, and I am joined via Skype by all-around good guy, Todd Campbell. Todd, how are you? I'm great, Shan. How are you doing today? I am doing well. I must say I was so excited to record this show with you today because there's been so much news coming out of the biopharmaceutical space, which we'll get into. But Todd, what a way to start 2019. There's going to be a lot of people on our listening to our show today who are going to be probably thinking the same thing. What do I do now? <laughs> and of course, we'll get into that in a second. But yeah, it was quite a, quite a splash at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference uh, beginning this weekend. Yes. And just for our listeners who maybe are new to the healthcare space, the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference is literally the Super Bowl of healthcare conferences. It's where literally thousands, I think maybe 30,000 scientists, business development people, investors descend on San Francisco. That almost sounded like a plague, but (laughs) probably not too far from the (laughs) truth. Uh, but <laughs> for, re- for residents, maybe it feels that way. I, I don't know. Probably so. I mean, you got hotel prices going up. I've seen as high as $20,000 for like four nights in San Francisco. But for our new listeners, you get the idea. This conference is really about companies presenting the latest on their pipelines, giving updates, and more importantly, uh, making some very strategic deals. So let's start the show with the deal of deals, the one everybody's been talking about, Todd, and that would be the mega merger of Bristol Myers Squibb and Celgene. Um, just to also catch our listeners up, this was a deal that was announced um, on Thursday, and you typically see that heading into the J.P. Morgan conference. Um, you'll see the bigger M&A deals announced sometimes just right before the conference starts on Monday, sometimes on that first Monday. This year did not disappoint. So a huge deal, Todd, $74 billion deal, and actually $95 billion if you factor in the debt. Todd, I have to say, I did not see this one coming. I was expecting Celgene to be on the other side of that trade. You and me I both. Was expecting, yeah, I was expecting them to come out and say, hey, yeah, we're going to buy blank. You know, this collaboration partner we've been working with or this other thing. I mean, last year we had that impact bio acquisition that they announced. And then a couple of weeks later, they announced the Juno Therapeutics deal. And there's been a lot of uh, talk and chatter that, you know, Celgene, you know, to, to fuel f- further growth in the future, maybe it would go out and do some additional acquisitions. But lo and behold, it was not the acquirer. It was uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb that was the acquirer of it. And it's a huge deal. You know, you mentioned, I mean, if you, if not including the debts, $74 billion deal. Um, there's, there's a lot of moving pieces to this deal, though. And I, I'm, sh- I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are looking at this deal going, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's break that down even further, Todd, because there's a, a couple of different components to the deal. So uh, right now, what's going to happen is Bristol will acquire Celgene. So it is for every um, Celgene will basically get one share of Bristol. 
Um, you'll also get $50 in cash. And then they've got this really interesting contingent value, right? It's $9. It is a tradable asset um, that is contingent upon approval of three products actually reaching the finish line. So multiple components to this deal that ultimately had Celgene valued at about $102 a share. And honestly, Todd, I think for a lot of Celgene holders, that was not the price that they were expecting. No, no. Me included. I mean, I'm looking at this deal and I'm saying, wait a minute. You know, if Bristol-Myers sold off on the news. That's common, you know, right, for the acquirer to sell off the news. So I, I think that when you when you take the 50 bucks in cash plus the Bristol-Myers share, we'll ignore the $9 contingent value, right, the CVR. We'll ignore that for right now because that's not guaranteed, right? We, we, we may or may not get that in the future, and you're talking about a sub $100 price for the, for a company that shares, you know, in 2017 we're trading around 140 and you know shares traded above 100 for most of the period from 2014 to 2017. So I, I yeah, I think a lot of people are probably scratching their heads going, "Geez, you know, I, they may not even, you know, a lot of investors may be sitting on a, a loss even after this acquisition is announced." Yeah, naturally. And and two, I think it's worth noting here that, you know, both companies have floundered. So that $140 share price has certainly come down because Celgene has had a couple of missteps along the way. Todd, you and I have talked about this in some of the previous shows. Uh, Bristol, just a few, right? <laughs> just a few. Uh, Bristol has certainly taken a beating, has fallen behind uh, rival Merck in the checkpoint inhibitor race. So these are two companies that have really been trying to find their footing now coming together to form this mega conglomerate. And it, for those healthcare investors out there that may not be aware, oftentimes these big biopharma mergers often don't end up so well. So there's a lot of uncertainty here. Um, and speaking of uncertainty, Todd, we've gotten quite a few questions. And I think uh, one that really sums up a lot of the uncertainty, a lot of the head scratching, is one that came in from Tom on Twitter. Tom, thanks so much for uh, writing into the full. But he says, what questions should cell gene owners be asking themselves in deciding to sell or hold? It seems time for a new thesis or a reallocation. Well, Tom, this is a great question, and we're so glad you asked. Todd, what do you say to that question? Well, I think the first question I ask myself is, is this deal enough? I mean, you know, Celgene is saying um, that their 2020 earnings per share will still be $12.50. And if you if you take a look at the Bristol-Myers current price, Celgene, 50 bucks, um, that's 7, 7.8 times forward uh, earnings that Bristol Myers is paying to land Celgene, uh, you know, and, and Celgene is a really much faster growing company. I mean, it's growing its top and its bottom line by double digits, while Bristol Myers is growing, you know, um, you know, seven eight percent. So, you know, that that's question number one. Like, is this enough? And will any shareholders therefore balk? And could that mean that some other company swoops in and says? You know what? Uh, I'll make a competing offer for you, Celgene. Um, or maybe they go out and they go, hey, I'm just going to buy Bristol Myers now and I'm going to get Bristol Myers and Celgene all together. That's been floated as well. Although the likelihood of that's pretty small, I think, because there aren't that many companies that could swallow a deal that big. 
Exactly. And you've also got the financing in play. And it looks like this deal right now is set to close in the third quarter of this year. But there certainly is the chance that someone could swoop in and maybe um, sweeten the deal for Celgene shareholders. Like you said, I don't see that likely. But yeah, I think general consensus is Bristol got an awesome deal for Celgene, but Celgene shareholders are still left holding the bag. Uh, Another good question, and Todd, you actually did an amazing series on what this means for Celgene shareholders and also what it means for Bristol shareholders as well. I'd encourage our listeners to check out those articles on full.com. But another good question is just deciding what kind of investor are you? Right. Am I a growth investor or am I an income investor? You know, you want to know whether or not you're going to buy, sell, or hold this stock. And I think actually we got a question to that. And, you know, the the question being, you know, what do I do now? Um, And I think you really have to figure out, you know, do do you want your portfolio to be focused on double-digit growers who are plowing all of their money back into uh, research and development to fuel future growth? Or are you more interested in owning a slower growing company um, that pays, obviously still reinvests some money into research and development, uh, but also pays a dividend? Because that's the big difference, probably one of the big differences between Bristol-Myers and Celgene is that Bristol-Myers does pay a a relatively healthy dividend. But you're not going to get the same kind of needle-moving reaction from winning the approval of one drug in a combined Bristol Myers Squibb Celgene as you would with Celgene as a standalone. It just won't happen. I mean, Bristol Myers Squibb plus Celgene, however, we want to do that mashup name, right, Shannon? I don't know. I mean, uh, they're going to do about $40 billion in annualized sales based on last quarter. I mean, you just, you know, so you need to have generate $4 billion, uh, drugs that create $4 billion in sales just to move the needle by, by 10%. Yeah. And I mean, combined, you are looking at a pretty impressive portfolio, though. So really, with this merger, this could potentially set up this company to have the second leading oncology portfolio um, behind Roche, which is quite incredible. So it takes a lot of the pressure off, for example, concerns about Revlimid. That's been really Celgene's bread and butter, makes up over two-thirds of revenue for the company. And there have been a lot of concerns about upcoming generics starting to erode sales for that drug. This certainly takes the pressure off because now you've got, I believe it's like six potential new drugs coming on, on the market within the next five to seven years, potentially another $15 billion in revenue um, that could be unlocked with that. So it certainly makes it um, intriguing uh, moving forward. But yeah, I think it comes down to Will you be satisfied with not having, you know, the high growth rates that you saw with Celgene as a standalone? Yeah. And so, I mean, if you're a growth investor, you're probably going to want to focus on other ideas. Um, but if you're a growth slash income investor, you know, someone who kind of plays both, both, you know, will play in both, like me, that's, that, I do that. And I own Celgene and I plan to continue to hold Bristol-Myers after this deal is done. So, you know, I, I cause, because you know, I run, I run a pretty diversified portfolio and I'm fine with having a company like Bristol-Myers in there. You make a great point about the oncology franchise of the, of the combined company. Uh, if you look at the combined company, you're going to have Opdivo, Sprycell, Yervoy. You're going to have Revlimid, Pomalist, and Abraxane. And combined, those drugs generate about $6 billion um, in sales per quarter. And, you know, we've talked about the attractiveness of oncology in the past, you know, it's an important market. 
and you know it's pretty in demand for those for those drugs is inelastic. I mean, if you have cancer and you need treatment, you're going to get treatment. You're not going to you know put it off because of of economic concerns necessarily. So you know that makes them a big player, obviously, in oncology, and also they get on Tesla. And Tesla is great for Bristol Myers because they have another drug in autoimmune disease called Arencia. And Arencia is losing its patent protection. Now it's a biologic, and there's no biosimilars that are about to launch for it. But eventually, you could have biosimilars start to eat away at Urencia's sales, and adding Otesla in to Bristol-Myers' product portfolio kind of offsets some of that potential risk for the company down the road. So yeah, you've got, you know, you've got drugs that can move the needle. I mean, you've got that, that CVR that we talked about before, and that applies to the approval of Lisocell, which is um, the lead drug that they acquired in the, that Celgene acquired from the, uh, Juno Therapeutics, that's a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma drug, that has to win approval by 2000, the end of 2020. Um, you have to get approval for Ozonamod, which is the multiple sclerosis drug that's had some stumbles that has to win approval before the end of 2020. And then you've got Bluebird Bios, uh, BB2121, um, Celgene is collaborating with them on that drug. That has to win FDA approval by March 31st, 2021. If they don't win approval, then you don't get the extra $9. So that's something that you have to be thinking about as well. Yeah, let's dive into our second question uh, that came in from Amit. Uh, he says, under the terms of the deal, Celgene shareholders will receive one Bristol-Myers Squibb share and $50 in cash for each share held. Since the current price is around $81, this was at the time that he wrote, for Celgene in Bristol is 45 Does it not make sense to buy Celgene now and get $45 in stock? plus $50 in cash, which equals about $95, so a profit of about $14 per share at the time. He says, am I missing something here, Todd? Kinda. I mean, there's you got to remember that there's always risk associated uh, with a deal after it's been announced to when it closes. And in this case, you've got two risks that you have to consider. You have to consider not only what could go wrong at Celgene between now and then, but also what could go wrong with Bristol-Myers Squibb between now and then. Because a stumble at either one of those companies could somehow impact negatively that deal, right? If Bristol-Myers shares sell off, the value of this deal falls, right? So you build in some protection. That's why you get that arbitrage opportunity where you have the difference between, um, as he pointed out, as the right, as the listener pointed out, the 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 value of the fifty dollars plus the BMY shares, um, and, and where Celgene is trading today below that amount. Overall, I like it, um, and and I would say, yeah, you know, go ahead and do it because I I think that there that I feel pretty pretty good about the odds of this deal closing or something better happening between now and then. Um, but there is risk. There is risk, and that risk would be if something goes wrong um, with one of the drugs that Celgene's researching, one of the drugs that Bristol Myers researching. Who knows? Yeah, fair enough, and I have to agree there. I mean, there it sounds like an awesome opportunity. I, of course, am looking more long term at what this deal means. Um, one of the things that uh, came up in the conference call was the potential synergies. Yes, I use that word, Todd. There were synergies of potentially two and a half billion. And really what that comes down to is cost cutting and really layoffs. And ultimately what it comes down to is they're going to start to shelve some potentially promising candidates down the line. When you've got now resources combined, yes, you do have some um, duplication of functions and resources, but they're going to have to make a decision about which products they want to move forward with. 
you can't win them all. So it'll be really interesting. And I think there's a lot of risk long term and what that looks like for these companies. Um, generally speaking, when you see large biopharma and just large pharma in general, um, they do tend to be a little slower when it comes to innovation and a little more um, unwieldy when it comes to M&A. I mean, here you had Bristol and Celgene, really two of the most dynamic M&A players in the space now joining forces. Um, it'll be sad to me to not see a new press release about Celgene buying up a new company, Todd. Um, but yeah. it'll be interesting to watch moving forward. A lot of question marks, a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think for most investors right now, it's kind of let's hold the line and see. Would you agree with that, Todd? I think so. I think so. Like I said, I'm, I own Celgene. My plan at this point is just to ride it out, take my $50 and uh, and my Bristol-Myers share and hope for the best on the CVR and hope that you know, Bristol-Myers can execute on its plans. You mentioned the synergies. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's saying that this is going to be immediately accretive to a pretty good tune. I mean, both of these companies, the upside is that both of these companies are very profitable companies, right? So, so it's not like uh, integrating them together is going to, to create a, a very large drag, right? Bristol-Myers as a combined company actually should see its operating metrics improve following this deal. So keep an eye on that. Yep, keep an eye on that. And on the other side of the break, we'll be diving into two more big biopharma stories coming out of the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. But first, a quick word from our friends at Cineos Health. This episode of Motley Fool Industry Focus is brought to you by Cineos Health. Bringing a new drug to market is getting tougher and tougher. At Cineos Health, they're changing the game. As a result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, They've created a unique business model that allows clinical and commercial disciplines to work together, eliminating traditional process obstacles and delivering something they call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Helping their customers accelerate the delivery of important therapies to patients, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit CineosHealth.com podcast. All right, and we're back. So no surprises that the next story on our list is also a big M&A deal that is coming out of the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference this week. And that is none other than Eli Lilly announcing that it will be purchasing the genetics oncology player Loxo Oncology. That's ticker symbol L-O-X-O, and of course, for Eli Lilly, L-L-Y. It's a deal worth $8 billion in cash and one that really adds to the string of deals Eli Lilly has been doing to try to beef up its oncology portfolio. So, Todd, we've got now two big M&A deals really focused on the oncology assets. Yep. Yeah, I mean, Lilly is probably best known for being a leader in diabetes, right? It makes Humalog and a bunch of other uh, important diabetes drugs, but it's also long been a playing in the in in oncology, and its stated goal is to to boost the amount of sales that it gets from um, from those indications. And this deal certainly puts it on the cutting edge of uh, what we'll call the next generation, perhaps, in how doctors treat uh, patients who have cancer, because Loxo Oncology. Uh, they actually have a had have won FDA approval for a really really kind of a unique drug that works unlike most of the other cancer drugs that are out there on the market. 
Yeah. And one thing I'll mention is that this deal actually represents a 66% premium to Loxo's closing price of $139 a share on Friday of last week. So unsurprisingly, we saw the shares of this company skyrocket to nearly 66% on the day that it was announced. But yeah, it all comes down to this new innovative approach. It's really targeted and focused in on uh, precision medicine. So um, you mentioned that they've got a drug out. It's one that's called Trophy, I believe it is pronounced. And uh, it focuses on basically fusion genes. It's these genes that when they fuse together, flip a switch, and then all of a sudden now you have these cancer cells proliferating. Loxo Oncology has come on the market with drugs that could potentially um, be game changers in this space moving forward. You know, we've talked about in the show in the past about this whole, you know, what's happening in cancer treatment. And we're moving increasingly away from the treating based on the origin of the cancer. So breast cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, whatever. And more to the um, the biology or, or the genetic mutation that may be contributing to the disease. So, you know, what Loxo's Vitrac V. <laughs> That's not an easy one to say, is it? Um, what that drug uh, does is it, it it can be used in various solid tumor cancers. It doesn't matter where it originated, um, you know. And according to the companies, uh, it's it's not it's not a ton of patients that have these uh, TRK um, fusion mutations. But, you know, it could still be, you know, thousands of patients that are eligible for treatment. Now, Lilly is going to have to split um, in the U.S. any sales from this uh, drug with Bayer. Bayer licensed 50% of the rights to any profit on the drug. Uh, I think it was either one or two years ago, prior to the approval anyways. And uh, outside the U.S., what will happen is Bayer will market it and then pay Lilly a double-digit royalty on sales. But that's not the only drug that Eli Lilly gets in this deal. Um, it also gets Loxo 292, which is potentially, you know, it could be in the leadership here. It could get to the market before some of the other competitors that are also working on drugs that work similarly. It inhibits something called RET. And RET fusions are estimated to be present in about 2 to 3% of non-small lung cancer patients. Um, and about, well, it varies depending on the thyroid cancer type of thyroid cancer you're looking at. But still, again, thousands of patients potentially uh, for an addressable market for this drug. And in trials, the results for Loxo-292 have been pretty good. And that's, that's got some people thinking that that could be a major drug as well. And Lilly will own 100% of the rights to 292. 292 has not been licensed out to anyone else, at least not yet. Yeah, so Loxo 292 is potentially the more lucrative option uh, here for Loxo and for Eli Lilly. So certainly keep your eyes on that. But I am glad to see Eli Lilly becoming much more aggressive in building out their oncology portfolio. Um, they were pretty late to the game when it came to cancer immunotherapy. I mean, you saw Bristol and Merck getting out the gate with their checkpoint inhibitors. And now Eli Lilly has really had to play catch up. So to see this deal, they also had a deal, I believe, in May of 2018 for, I believe it was Amro 
biosciences, uh, really targeting basically the patients who weren't responding to checkpoint inhibitors. So you've got now potentially oncology portfolio that is not being addressed by a whole lot. Uh, granted, they are very small patient populations, um, but is very intriguing to see Eli really start to become much more strategic and aggressive in their approach. Yep, and there's two other drugs, too, that are worth knowing about that they're going to get in this deal, LOXO-305 and LOXO-195. And LOXO-305 is designed to overcome uh, resistance that can build up in patients taking the mega-blockbuster drug Imbrovica. And LOXO-195 is a second-generation TRK fusion drug. So if, people st- if we discover that people are starting to develop um, resistance to TRK fusion medicines like uh, Vitravkivy, um, then you know this drug could theoretically get used as well. So yeah, there's some exciting things going on here, and like you said, interesting to see both of these really big Bristol Myers and now in and Eli big traditional pharmaceutical companies making big splashes um, that advance them to into next generation biologics. Yeah, so turning the page a little bit, let's talk about a smaller player in the space that also made headlines this week. And uh, that would be the clinical stage biotech Sage Therapeutics, that's ticker symbol S-A-G-E. Shares skyrocketed nearly 43% on positive data coming out Monday, uh, really related to their postpartum depression drug, Sage 217. Todd, as you know, we love to see good data, and especially in an indication like depression, which historically has always, you see a lot of these studies get uh, overtaken by the placebo effect. This is one company that I think has figured it out multiple times, just how to make these clinical trials run well and also have some impressive data results. Yeah, central nervous system disorders are extremely difficult to develop new drugs for. Uh, and there's been a, a, an absence of big advances for these disorders um, for for many years now. I was actually kind of surprised, Shannon, when I looked at the market cap for this company. I mean, it's a clinical stage company. They don't have any FDA approvals yet. They have one potentially on deck. We'll get to that in a minute. But it already has a $6 billion market cap. So it may be one of the bigger bigger biotech companies that, that many listeners may not be familiar with. Um, they did indeed announce results for Sage 217's phase three trial in postpartum depression this week. And that sent shares up, I think, 43% at one point on Monday, and they're now up 35% over the past five trading days. This is an important, um, this is an important drug. I'm, you know, I'm not going to, you, know, you can't deny this. Uh, postpartum depression is, is underdiagnosed. There's a stigma associated with it. Um, yet there are still 400,000 cases of it, even though it is underdiagnosed. And there really aren't any treatments that are specific to postpartum depression. I mean, you can treat them using other things that are used in depression in central nervous system disorders. But, you know, this theoretically could 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 become one of the first, I'm going to say one of the, because we're going to get to another drug in a second that, that Sage is working on, one of the first that targets postpartum depression um, um, outright. 
And one of the other things with sage is that it's actually an oral drug. So, um, and we've been talking around it, but what looks like to be very likely, very likely approval coming in March is their drug Zoreso. Um, Zoreso is the IV infusion. I believe it's a 60 hour infusion uh, for postpartum depression that did get a positive nod from the advisory committee at the FDA. I believe it was a 17 to 1 vote recommendation in favor of approval for this particular drug. So we could see that drug hit the market, but now you've got Sage 217 um, that is right on its heels, works very much the same, um, but has a very much more convenient route of administration, which could send really the the sales of the drug even higher than the first drug that they have set to come out and market in March. Yeah, okay, so... This is an interesting story. This whole Zoressa story is interesting. The FDA's originally had planned to issue a go-no-go decision on December 19th. However, in November, they pushed that decision back. So now an FDA decision isn't coming until March of 2019, which, of course, then leads investors to say, well, why did they do that? Are they uncertain of something that they saw following that ADCOM vote? Um, What caused them to, to want to delay their decision? It really just stems from the fact that the ADCOM was based on um, the ability to sep- for, for there to be a risk management um, um, uh, system put in place for patients who do receive this drug um, because it's going to be a controlled substance. And that plan was submitted to the FDA. Once you make a major change like that, like submitting this plan, the FDA oftentimes will uh, invoke its right to delay by three months its decision. So yes, the decision has now been moved to March 19th. Uh, I, I think there's a very good chance that this thing wins approval. You, you hit the nail on the head, though, when you said that it's not going to be a convenient treatment option. It's going to be inpatient option. Um, and it's, it's you know, like you said, it's given intravenously. So this is, this is, uh, this is not an ideal a solution for for this patient population, especially since it's um, you know a stigmatized uh, uh, indication, and, and a lot of patients don't that may be feeling the effects of postpartum depression uh, don't actually go out and tell their doctor about it. Um, you know, anyway. So yes, we could get the approval of that. Once that approval, assume it happens in March, then the drug enforcement agency that has um, I think it's a ninety day window to be able to schedule the drug because, again, it will be a controlled substance. Once they get that in place, then they say they're good to go. So this company is most likely, if it's going to get approval, it's most likely not going to see any sales coming in for this drug until the back half of this year. So starting in, say, Q3. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, that should be also when we get more insight into Sage 217 and its potential not only to be used in postpartum depression, but also to be used in major depressive disorder. And, you know, again, these are that's even a, a bigger treatment market, Shannon. I mean, that, that could be tens of millions of, of addressable patients, you know, if it gets approved eventually for depression. Absolutely. So you see that the market is wide open um, for Sage and their their depression drugs. So a lot to watch here. I will say um, with this particular company in 2018, this was really one of those companies that was the talk of the town when it came to M&A targets. Um, I would not be surprised, especially coming off this positive phase three data um, for Sage 217, 
to also see that heat back up uh, in 2019 as well. So a lot to look forward to. Um, certainly, uh, I'm a lot on the docket, but it is encouraging to see some good positive study results coming out of JPM. Yeah, and they have the other thing investors should know that they have a lot of cash. Uh, they've got a billion dollars of the books coming out of September on the books coming out of September. They just did file a mixed shelf offering, but it was for an undisclosed sum so that they, you know, they can tap investors for more money if they need it for their research. But I don't know how much more they'll actually need if they start you know, bringing in some sales before the end of this year. And then as far as trying to think about, well, it's already worth $6 billion, what could it be worth in an indication? You got to do some guessing there. I mean, if you assume that they've got a billion dollar blockbuster on their hands, well, then they're already trading at six times that billion dollars, right? So six times sales. I usually think that deals should happen somewhere between three and seven times projected sales. So, you know, you want to factor that in as you're doing the calculus in your brain of whether or not you want to be buying this stock on the potential for M&A. Uh, otherwise, you know, just stay tuned because this company is going to have a lot of data uh, points coming out in 2019 that could move the stock up or down. So keep an eye on all of that. And more importantly, if you want to keep an eye on all the news coming out of the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, Todd and a whole host of other of our foolish writers have been writing feverishly away um, over these past few days. If you want to check out all of their coverage in one place, we have put up a J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference Roundup uh, on our site. If you just Google the Motley Fool J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference Roundup, you will find it. So be sure to check that out. And that's it for this week's Industry Focus Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. And of course, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and Fool on! These days, bringing a new drug to life is getting tougher and tougher. It can take billions of dollars and a decade or more to bring an experimental drug from molecule to market. And only one in five marketed drugs ever achieve revenues that match or exceed R&D costs. At Cineos Health, we're working to improve the odds. The result of a merger between INC Research and Inventive Health, Cineos Health is the only company purpose-built to create what we call biopharmaceutical acceleration. Our unique business model allows the clinical and commercial disciplines to work together from the start, sharing critical data, insights, and knowledge. The Cineos Health approach creates success by eliminating traditional obstacles and smoothing the process at every step along the way, from clinical trials to FDA approval, branding and marketing to patient adherence. Every day, Cineos Health is focused on a simple end goal, shortening the distance from lab to life. To learn more, visit SineosHealth.com slash podcast.